The following sermon is from the pulpit of Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. Visit us online at flintriverpbc.org. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. Paul writes, Therefore we both labor and suffer reproach. We'll read it again for your hearing. Because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. The majority of what we have to say today will be about this latter phrase in this verse. First thing we want to note from this passage is that the gospel ministry is a work. Paul says, therefore, we both labor and suffer reproach. Now, it's true that Paul spent a portion of his time in his secular trade, if you want to refer to it as that, which was making tents. He was a tent maker. Paul, when he would go into a new city, usually a Gentile city, would labor with his own hands. He would work with his own hands because he didn't want the Gentiles that he preached to, that he worked to convert, to believe that he was just another guru, another philosopher, another man who wanted to teach some lesson, regardless of whether philosophical or religious, so that he could build a faction behind him and generate income or revenue through his teaching of whatever it is that he's teaching. That was common in his day, and that's common today. Um, Paul would go into a community, and he would labor with his own hands, to give the example that, as he says to the Thessalonians, if a man won't work, he also should not eat. But many times in Paul's writings, he would say that it is God's will, in fact, he has ordained that they which preach the gospel should what? Should live of the gospel. So Paul spent the majority of his time working in the gospel. Sometimes he was supported by the congregations that he served. Sometimes, as he told the Corinthians, he robbed other churches, taking wages of them to do them a service. In fact, that was the way that he said the only way that they were inferior to other churches is that he was not burdensome unto them. But he had his method and his manner. He would go into a place. He would labor there with his own hands. But certainly, even though he labored, what he did in the ministry was his true work. That was what he did. That was his... Life. That is what he devoted all of his time to, even when making tents. One of my friends in the ministry pointed out, he's deceased now, Elder Bobby Collins, that Paul was a tent maker. Paul never set up a tent making factory. And Paul never engaged in secular pursuits to the extent that he attempted to make a chain of tent factories. He did what he had to do to get by, and he devoted the entirety or the majority of his time to his gospel labors. If you follow the book of Acts from when Paul is introduced, that's very evident and very clear that he spent his time preaching the gospel. Now, he would tell Timothy, as we'll see later in this epistle, that we must keep ourselves untied from the pursuits of this world. He writes much about the concept of devoting ourselves entirely to this work of the ministry to which God has called us, but it is most certainly a work, whether a man has a secular trade at the same time that he uses to feed himself and care for his family, or if he's entirely supported, this is to be 
his work. This is what he spends his time doing. This is what takes his time. This is what he is to devote his life to. Therefore, we both labor and suffer reproach. And I would just reiterate the point that the gospel ministry, as far as the people, the men who make up the gospel ministry, are to spend their time laboring in the gospel. We pray, we study the Lord's word, we look for open doors for evangelism, and we share the word of Christ anywhere and everywhere that we can share the word of Christ. This will come into the message later on in our thoughts today. But we are to devote ourselves to the preaching of the gospel of Christ. Now, the gospel comes with many, many afflictions. In Paul's day, if you read 2 Corinthians chapter 12, you know that Paul suffered what he called many perils. He suffered perils from false brethren, perils of robbers. We don't have accounts of that written for us in the Word of God, but there were times that Paul suffered afflictions from those who would rob him. He suffered shipwreck. He floated in the sea on driftwood. He comes ashore and encounters barbarians. He's bit by a snake as he encounters the barbarians. When they saw that happen, they said, He's a murderer. Fate doesn't suffer him to live. And then when Paul shakes the snake off into the fire, they said, Well, he must be a god. You see the fickle, extreme nature of men and how we can flip our opinions from one to the other in an instant, but at the same time, we're people of great extremes. Paul would be beaten. He would be whipped with a scourge. He would be stoned and left for dead. Paul was a man who suffered very greatly for the cause of Christ. We both labor and suffer reproach. But at minimum... All of us, if we love the Lord Jesus and we attempt to serve him in this world, if we stand for what is right and what is true, at minimum we will suffer rejection and ridicule. As far as ridicule is concerned, the more you stand for Christ publicly in our day, the more you will experience shame and ridicule. It's not a popular thing in our country anymore to be a professing, Bible-believing Christian. It simply isn't. In fact, you'll be labeled as a bigot. The things that you say will be labeled as hate speech. Recently, I've seen several occurrences of this on social media where someone will make a post, and I understand that there is such a thing as hate speech, and we don't want to engage in hate speech because ours is not a religion of hate. It's a religion of love. <clears throat> but as a person who is to... Love, when someone is wrong, the loving thing to do is to help them. If a person is about to drink poison, would it be hateful for you to tell the person, that's poison, don't drink that? Now, that would be very loving, wouldn't it? I would want to know before I drank poison that what I was about to drink is indeed poisonous. And so the loving thing would be to warn them and to stop them, to intervene. <clears throat> but in our day and age, to simply say, Something is sinful or people are sinful is labeled as hate speech. I mentioned social media. This past week I saw in a group that I'm in, a fairly conservative Christian Facebook group that I'm in, a person wrote a comment not about any subgroup in our culture, but he had posted a post that or a comment that we are all sinners and we all deserve God's wrath. 
Now, he didn't say you are a sinner and you deserve God's wrath. He said we are all sinners and we deserve God's wrath. That's true. That is true. Facebook itself flagged the post as hate speech, violating their community standards. Now, we don't suffer the beatings of Paul. We don't suffer the beatings of Christians in Saudi Arabia. We don't suffer the beatings of Christians in China or Iran. We don't suffer the way Christians in other countries suffer. But at minimum, we will experience, when we stand for Christ, some degree of reproach, of rejection, of ridicule. It's important to point out that the gospel is a great unifier, and it unifies people who have hardly anything else in common. And we see this in Paul's writings, that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. Could there be a greater distinction in culture than the Gentile of the first century and the Jew of the first century? And yet Jew and Gentile alike find unity in the gospel of Christ. Jew and Greek, male and female, bond and free, servants and masters, rich and poor, a wise Greek philosopher or those the Bible would refer to as a barbarian, someone who lives in more of a tribal culture. People find great unity in the cross, but at the same time, as much as the gospel brings unity to people, it brings great division. Jesus came not to bring peace, but what? Sword. And so there's division that comes when we stand for the faith once delivered to the saints. The gospel comes with many afflictions, at minimum rejection and ridicule. Now let's begin looking at the meat of this text. We trust in the living God. We labor because we trust in the living God. Perhaps in a future message it would be beneficial for us to spend some time thinking about the trust that we are to live out day to day in the living God. In fact, I think that's something that we'll consider maybe in next week's message, this type of trust and this level of trust that we have in God, this confidence that we have in God. But we trust in the living God. In other words, God is not a dead God. He isn't a wooden idol adorned in silver or gold. He isn't hewn out of the stone and placed as an idol on the mantle at our house that we carry around and can do nothing for us because he, if God were an idol such as that, he would be an inanimate object. We, he could not bear us. We would bear him. We would carry him. He could not carry us. But we trust in the living God, a real God a God that's alive, a God that is omniscient, a God that is omnipotent, a God that is omnipresent, a God who is the sovereign Lord of the universe, but also our Father intimately acquainted with everything that we need, everything that we desire, with all the correction we need, all the encouragement we need. We trust in the true and living God, but this true and living God, notice what we read, is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe, the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. Now, this is our passage for today. Of the passages of Scripture that I have read that have the greatest degree of disagreement and, for lack of a precise theological term, head-scratching, this is probably in the top five. In other words, if you look this verse up in commentaries and you read what men have to say about it, it legitimately confuses most commentators. 
And so more than likely what they come up with is some variation of, well, this is talking not about God as the Savior from sin, but it's talking about God in his provision for people in their day-to-day lives. Now, is it true that God provides for every single creature on this planet? Amen. That's a true principle. But is that what this verse is teaching? Well, let's look at this word, the most important word in this sentence. It's the word Savior. Now, this is simple wisdom, but contextually, this isn't talking about God as provider, but rather it's talking about God as what? Savior. The word Savior, the root of that word is save. Okay? So whatever Paul is talking about here, that God is the Savior of all men, especially those that believe, whatever he's talking about here is in the framework, not of providence, but the framework of salvation. Not in the framework of providence, but the framework of salvation. Again, God is the provider in a physical sense for every single human being on planet Earth. What did Paul say in Acts 17? For in him we live and move and have our being. What did Jesus say in, I believe, the Sermon on the Mount, that God causes his Son to rise on the good and the evil? His reign is sent in providence on the just and the unjust. God provides even for those who are wicked. He provides for all men. He provides not only for men, he clothes the field with lilies, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven. And Jesus uses that as an example to say, if God clothes the field with lilies, don't you think he'll care for you when the field is here today and in one day will be cast into an oven, burned with fire in the second coming? If God cares for the field... Don't you think God cares for you? And likewise, he uses the sparrows, which they have no barns. They have no storehouses. They don't labor in the field. They don't sow gardens and then reap the plants from those gardens. They don't hunt and preserve meat, and yet God feeds them. God feeds the birds, the fowls of the air. In fact, not a a fowl of the air falls from the sky without God taking note of it. Don't you think he cares for you? Certainly God cares for all creation because he is a faithful creator. You might think, why does God care for people in the world who are in and will always be under his righteous indignation and judgment? Why would God care for someone that despises him? Not because of them. God cares in a physical sense because of him. Because he is faithful as a physical creator to his physical creation to provide seed time and harvest, sunlight, rain, food, sustenance. And by and large, creation is unthankful for this. God certainly, that that is certainly a true principle that God provides for all men. But remember that the root of this word Savior isn't provide, but the root word of this word Savior is save. In fact, it 
translates from a word that comes into the English word as soteriology, which is literally the theology of salvation. This is literally the word for salvation. Whatever he has reference here to here has reference not to his provision, but to salvation. Now, ask yourself the question, is Jesus the Savior of all men without exception? And if the answer to that is yes, then every man without exception will be in heaven. Because if Jesus is their Savior, they are saved. Will every human being be in heaven? No. There is a hell. People will be there. And they will be there because they deserve to be there. And you and I won't be there because of grace, because otherwise we deserve to be there. So what then does it mean that he's the Savior of all men? Well, let's begin digging into this. The word all here, and this is the second most important word for you to understand in this passage. Remember that we're reading a translation. It was translated into English in 1611, but it comes from a different language. It comes from another culture with a different vocabulary, with different meanings and shadings. And this is why I devote a great deal of my personal time to etymology and the study of words and how not only they were used in that day, but the words in our English Bibles, how they came to mean what they mean and what they meant when it was translated and where those words came from and how they went from Greek to Latin to Old English to Middle English to Modern English, which the KJV is written in Modern English, because you learn what they meant. One of the greatest mistakes a modern believer can make is to interject their vocabulary, their definitions, on the words of this Bible. And I see it happen every day when I'm discussing things with people online. They'll define words as they understand them today. You will rarely see me use dictionary.com as a theological dictionary. Rarely, if ever, Will you see me use dictionary.com as a theological dictionary? Now, I use all sorts of English dictionaries and Greek dictionaries and Hebrew dictionaries, and I study words at length. But the definitions that we come to the Word of God with today many times are not the definitions that applied then. Now, this word all is no exception. I've shared this definition with you many times. But this word all translates from the Greek word pas, P-A-S. It can mean all, though many times it does not. It can mean all, though many times it does not. It can also mean all of a certain type. Now, we use it that way all the time. If you say, is everyone in the car, the word everyone in the New Testament usually translates from the Greek word pos. Okay, moms and dads. Is everyone dressed for church? you immediately understand that's the context of every specific person in your home. Because if I were to ask the question, is everyone ready for church? I guarantee you, a majority of people in Huntsville right now are not ready for church. But I don't have to say, is everyone who lives at one... Let me not say my address on the live stream. Is everyone who lives in, is everyone who lives in my house ready for church? I don't have to say that because everyone there knows that everyone is everyone there, 
right? Makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Sometimes the word pos means all of a certain type. In other words, is everyone ready for church? And usually the answer to that is, I can't find my shoes. I haven't done my hair. I've got to brush my teeth. And Sister Rachel's one has always been, can you help me find my shoes? Dear woman, I don't know where your shoes go in a week time. They disappear. They get raptured. We're all left behind. Every, everyone's here but Rachel's shoes. And I'm looking under beds and under couches, and, and they may be you know, on the roof on the left side of the house. How did they get on the roof? We don't know, but that's where they are. So you understand everyone doesn't always mean everyone without exception. Make sense so far? But the last definition of this is the one that applies to this verse. The word all can mean everyone, everything, without exception. It can mean all of a certain type, like is everyone ready for church, and you have reference to everyone in your household. But it can also mean some of all types. Now, when Pauline epistles, that is a common way that Paul uses the word all. Why does he use the word all so often in his epistles? Because one of the major issues in the church in that day was that God has a people outside of the nation of Israel. And so when they would speak about all men, they would speak in terms of all types of men to distinguish what the new covenant is about from what the worship in the old covenant was about. What was the worship in the Old Covenant about? Well, it was centralized and localized in the tabernacle, then the temple, in the nation of Israel. And in Jesus' day, there even stood what was called the middle wall of partition, which divided the inner court from the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. It was a wall outside the temple. Gentiles could pass into one wall, and then they came into the outer court, which had another wall, the middle wall of partition, and Gentiles could not pass any further than that wall, and it was punishable by death. Jews could pass beyond that middle wall of partition and draw, in that sense, in that covenant, closer to God. And we talked about this Wednesday night at our Bible study, but within that temple was the holy place, and then beyond that was the Holy of Holies, and only one man, once a year, could go in there. In that place was the Ark of the Covenant, over which God, Jehovah, appeared in the form of a cloud and spoke to Moses. And so this is a serious place. Now you think about the way this is divided up. Gentiles can only go so far. And then the Jews could pass through, but there was another wall, and that wall, that partition the women had to stop at. So if you're a woman in the nation of Israel, the men could continue and you could not. And then you go a little further, the men can go. And then you go a little further and only the priests can go. And then of all the priests into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest could go. Which, by the way, depicted for us in advance our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot of great symbolism in the study of the tabernacle or the temple. But in today's time, there are no walls of partition. But if a person is in Christ, he has uninterrupted, unfiltered, unfettered access to God's throne. What was our first hymn that we sang this morning in our song service? A throne of grace, oh let us go and offer up our prayers. Because we have a high priest which can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, Jesus Christ, 
the Word, the Logos, the eternal Son of God, we come boldly to the throne of grace and we find mercy to help in time of need. There are no walls. There are no divisions. Jew or Greek, bond or free, male or female, all who are in Christ have this privilege of the right to come boldly to the throne of grace. And so the word all is used because he's reminding you over and over and over and over again that God has people throughout the entire world, not just Jews, not just Gentiles, not just Americans, not just Caucasians. Now let's begin to dig into that as a principle. The definition for this word all as it occurs in this verse, our definition for today, is some of all types, or if you want to use the synonym for type, some of all categories. Some of all categories. Jesus is the Savior of some of all types. Now we already considered that as we were in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2. This definition, this word has already come up. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Again, I ask the question, will all men be saved? No! So he's not talking about all men without exception. He's talking about, as some would say, all men without distinction, or as we would say, some of all types. He will have all sorts of men, is another word to use, to be saved. And by extension of that, he will have all sorts of men to come to the knowledge of the truth. Because before you can come to the knowledge of the truth, as we'll see in just a moment, or excuse me, but before you are saved, you can't come to the knowledge of the truth. Before you come to the knowledge of the truth, you must be saved. So as we begin, as we begin thinking about God having a people out of all categories, all types, all sorts, let's turn to the book of Revelation 5 and verse 9. Now there are two passages in Revelation that you probably know that I'm going to go to, if you're familiar with that book, especially with this concept but what I want to use this for is to demonstrate, illustrate the fact that God has people out of every type of person. Now, this is an uncomfortable truth to a lot of people because they don't carry thoughts to conclusion. Understand that a third of the world has been evangelized, and for the last 2,000 years, the large majority, the overwhelming majority of them have been Caucasian. And yet, God's people in Scripture, in heaven, those who are finally in heaven, well, they're not all Caucasian. But they're people out of what? Well, let's look. They sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy. They're singing to the Lamb, which is Christ. They sung a new song to this Lamb, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain. And has redeemed us to God, bought us back to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. 
In heaven, there are people from every kindred. The word kindred, one definition is a grandfather group. Every family on this planet has someone who is redeemed by the blood of Christ. People squirm when you say that. Because they think there's no salvation without them. Unless I get to you, you can't be saved. Jesus is over here saying, I don't need you to save anybody. Out of every kindred, out of every tongue, every language has someone in glory. Every people and every nation. Think about the ramifications of that if you just consider how many nations had come and gone before the time of the New Testament when the gospel went to all nations. And yet according to this verse, there are people in heaven out of every nation. Why? Because of Christ. Because God the Father set his love upon them. Because God the Son died for them. Because God the Spirit called them by his grace. Revelation 7, 9. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. To whom does salvation belong? It belongs to he that sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb that was slain. But notice what we read about the scope, the size of this people. And after this, I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number. How many people are going to be in heaven as a theological point, an innumerable host of people? They are out of every nation. They are out of every kindred. They are out of every people. And they are out of every tongue. Now, you can plug in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30 if you want, and read the salvation, the theology of salvation, everything that happened to them from the hand of God that took them from, there is none that feareth God, there's none that seeketh after God, they're all gone astray, God looked down from heaven, Psalm 53, and every one of them is a rejecter, that took them from that to these people in glory who are praising God. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, go home and read it. You find that they were predestined of God, justified by the Son, and called of the Spirit. And because of that, they'll be glorified. These people are glorified. And of every nation, kindred, and tongue. Since the world began, God has been calling people by His grace. And they'll be in glory. Now, as we think about them as being His people, a people of all sorts, is that demonstrated is that illustrated for you? People of all sorts, of all types. The point that I want to make now is that they are His people before we find them. Now, this is the book of Acts chapter 18. I love the book of Acts. You find such strong statements of God's sovereignty in the book of Acts. And this is the preaching of the apostles. Here we find our examples for what to preach and how to preach. And I would just say that if our preaching doesn't mirror the preaching of the apostles... The things that they said, the things that they did, then something is not right. We need to realign what we teach with what they taught because this is our pattern. This is inspired church history. 
I've listened to a lot of lectures on church history and read many books on church history, and it's amazing how the church drifts from century to century from the truth to one degree or another on one point of doctrine to another. And so we must set our anchor here in this New Testament, especially in the book of Acts. These people of every nation, kindred, and tongue that are his people... By the way, Matthew 121, Jesus came to save his people from their sins. When Paul goes into the city of Corinth, he preaches. Now, Corinth is a very, very wicked city. It is a place that you would not think that there are many people who are God's people. It's just a very, very wicked place. It was a multicultural society. It was a city at two ports that was beside an isthmus, and they had the Ismian games there every couple of years. Because of the trade there, because of the ports, you had people of all different cultures, and with their cultures, they brought their religion, they brought their debauchery, the old idiom about, you know, he talks like a sailor. What, what do you think that comes from? Why do you think that figure of speech is there? Or the old proverbial statements about a sailor who's come into port. Why, why do you think people made those statements? And I'll just leave that at that, but keep in mind, this is a city beside two ports. So there's great debauchery that occurred in the city of Corinth. Paul goes and he preaches. Now, what does Paul do? Well, the first place that he goes is into the synagogue. What does Paul always do? He goes into the synagogue. That was his manner. Paul, as his manner was, went into the synagogue. This is Acts 17, 2. He always does that when he goes into a city. Why? Because there are people there who believe in Jehovah God. And there's a copy of the scriptures. And so he can go in there and he can read the word of God. And he can debate with them. He can reason with them. He, he can give his defense of the divinity of Christ, the messiahship of Christ with them from the scriptures. And many times he converts people. Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ when they opposed themselves and blasphemed. He shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. What are Gentiles? Everyone not a Jew, a non-Jew. Think of the condition of Gentiles in that city at that time. Paul finds some success. The chief ruler of the synagogue believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Now look at verse 9. God has a people everywhere. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace. Who's speaking here? God. Be not afraid, speak, hold not thy peace, for I am with thee. And no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. Why? If you have your scriptures open, look at it with me. For I have much people in this city. I have many people here. Were they yet Christians? No. They were not yet followers. They were not yet disciples. That is a tough pill for a lot of Christians to follow. 
or to swallow. We don't like the concept of God saving people without our help. And it's just a fact. That is an old idea that there's no deliverance from sin outside your participation with us. It dates back all the way to the Donatist division in early Christianity. The Donatists disagreed with the rest of the church about what to do with the people who had lapsed. You see, the people who had lapsed during times of persecution, they denied Christ, or maybe they turned their scriptures over to be burned. These lapses, they left the faith and then they come back and the Donatists say, no, if you lapsed and you're a preacher, you're unqualified. And because in one region they allowed men to come back who had given their scriptures to be burned to continue laboring in the gospel ministry, the Donatists say, no, 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 we're not going to have anything to do with you. And so this feud begins to develop between the rest of the church and the Donatists and the thing that was accused, and you can read this in the writings of Augustine especially, if you're not with us in our group, you're not even really saved. And from that point on, that idea has been a part of what most Christians believe. And most people today in America are not that ravenous, but you find circles of people, if you're not our type of Baptist, you're not going to heaven. If you're not our type of Catholic, you're not going to heaven. If you're not our type of Reformed, you're not going to heaven. All the while, the Word of God says, God has a people out of every nation, kindred, and tongue, whether they agree with me or not. Now, do I want them to agree with me? I sure do. But that doesn't mean that they don't belong to Christ. If they belong to Christ, where are they going to be when they die? They're going to be in glory. Now, look at this. I have much people in this city. They were yet not converted in the sense that they were disciples. Now think of the implications of this. Paul could have been told by God, God could be meaning here by saying, I have much people in the city that I have people who are elected, but they're not yet regenerated. How did elected but not yet regenerated Saul of Tarsus respond to the gospel message? Well, he rounded up Christians and he executed them. Prior to regeneration, an elected person, one of these people out of every nation, kindred, and tongue, they despise God as much as an unregenerate or a non-elect person. Why? Because they're not yet regenerated. God tells Paul, nobody's going to hurt you because I have much people in this city. Meaning... They're already grace-softened people. I'm not afraid to say that. There's a lot of people who wouldn't dare. God already had people in that city. Now, what do we say to that? Praise God! Because there are, there's potential for far more people to be in glory than we could ever reach with the Word. But God is not bound. You find this in old writings. Even among people who believed that it was the gospel that regenerated people, that God would reach all of these people that he has elected with his spirit, even if they're unable to be called outwardly by the ministry of the word. That's taboo in today's time. 
but you just read it. I have much people in this city. Now, that's a theological point of doctrine. God has people among all types of people. Our family's a big family. Your true family, your real family is a big family. Christ died to bring many sons to glory, as Hebrews says. In the book of Titus 2, we see similar language by Paul, and I think it's depicted well here. In verse 11 of Titus 2, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Now this grace that brings salvation does some things. What does it do? Verse 12, Teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. That's why you feel compelled to live a righteous life. Because the grace of God has brought you salvation. And we look for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That verse teaches the divinity of Christ, and it teaches that Jesus is our Savior. But we look for, because we've been born of God, we yearn for, we have a hope of, an earnest expectation to be delivered from this place through which we wander as rejected pilgrims and strangers. We hope for the appearing of Jesus Christ. And it is grace that brings salvation, that teaches us to deny these ungodly lusts and to hope for deliverance from this world. Do you hope for deliverance from this world? That is because you have received grace that brings salvation. Now, it's appeared to what? All men. Has God's grace taught all men without exception that they should deny ungodliness? <laughs> no. Heavens, no. Turn on the news. Pick up a paper. Now, there are all sorts of men that have not been taught to deny ungodliness. There are all sorts of men who do not look for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. What does he mean by all? We'll read the context. You'll see the sum of all types depicted very clearly. In verse 2, he speaks of aged men. In verse 3, he speaks of aged women. In verse 4, he speaks of young women. He speaks of wives. He speaks of husbands. He speaks of children. In verse 6, he speaks of young men. In verse 9, he speaks of servants and masters. And by extension of that, because there are servants and there are masters, there are also rich and there are also poor. All types of men. Of every category of human being on this planet, God has called some by His grace. Scripture emphatically declares it of every nation, kindred, tongue, socioeconomic group, male, female, rich, poor, old, young. That is what the Bible teaches. Now, keep that thought in mind as we now transition into this next phrase, especially them that believe. We trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, all types of men, some out of every nation, kindred, tongue. But especially 
of those that believe. What does this mean? This language of a group and then another group, especially this language of a broad brush and then a a zoomed-in focus, is used by Paul to present a smaller group, a small group within a larger group. What do you mean by that? God is a savior of all types of men. But there's one type of man that we know that he's the savior of. We know he's the savior of. You see, I can look over at China right now, and I know that God has people in China, but I don't know who they are. I don't know them. I don't know their heart. What one group of people do we know have been changed by God? The believer. It's a small group within a larger group. Go home and get out a piece of paper and draw a big circle. Fill up the whole page. And write, some out of every nation, kindred, and tongue. And then draw a smaller circle and write, believer. And you have depicted in image form exactly what Paul is saying here. Now, he would use this same sort of sentence structure in the book of Titus chapter 1 and verse 10. Let's look at it. But he uses it in the negative. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision. There are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers. There's a lot of them. But within that larger group of vain talkers and deceivers, there's a smaller group that is especially noteworthy for this behavior. They're known for this behavior in Paul's day, they of the circumcision. You see how that's a smaller group within a larger group? God is the Savior of all types of men, Men and women out of every nation, kindred, and tongue, but we know that God is the Savior, especially of those that believe. Why do we know? Now, let me just say this to you. While we know that God theologically, we know this theologically as a matter of doctrine and dogma, Theologically, we know that God has a people of all types. But one type in specific we know perceptively are saved, and that is the believer. Theologically, we know that God has people in every nation, kindred, and tongue. Perceptively, we know that the believer is a person who is saved. Why? Okay, so 50-minute preface, 10-minute sermon. Remember our state before salvation. What was your state before salvation? What was the state of our mind and heart and soul before salvation? What was the psalm we read? Psalm 53. The Lord looks down from heaven among the children of men. There's none that seek him. Ephesians chapter 2. Before salvation. And you with he quickened, that means to be made alive, that's salvation who were dead in trespasses and in sins. Before God saved you, you were a corpse. People like to use this little metaphor. Well, God is throwing you a rope. He's reaching his hand down. All you've got to do is grab the rope. All you've got to do is grab his hand. Reach out to a dead body. 
See how the dead body responds to your rope. See how the dead body responds to your hand. That's you and that's me before Christ. The corpse, unable to reach, unwilling to reach. It doesn't even have to refuse because naturally it has no ability. Wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. Before God quickened you, you were a child of wrath, and so was I. Being a child of wrath, we are as Romans 3 describes. What does Romans 3 say? As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. Where does that come from? Psalm 53. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Paul anticipating you saying, wait a minute, somebody. No, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher, a tomb. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. That's a poisonous or a venomous, rather, snake. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, which comes from Isaiah 59. In Isaiah 59 it says their feet are swift to shed innocent blood. Not just bloodshed, but innocent bloodshed. They're predatorial. Destruction and misery are in their ways and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is us before grace. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm just going to hit them. Hit them and move. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. Until salvation, the gospel is foolishness. 1 Corinthians 2.14 But the natural man, the man who is by nature a child of wrath even as others in Ephesians 2.1, dead in sin, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. I could go on and on through the preaching of Jesus and demonstrate this over and over and over. Why do you not believe? Even because you lack the ears to hear. Because you're of your father the devil, as he said in John 8. Why do we especially know that believers are saved? God has a people out of every nation, kindred, and tongue. Who they are, where they are, that is a mystery to us until they receive the message. We simply don't know. But we know that the believer is a person of whom Jesus is their Savior, because unless a person is born of God, he cannot believe. And if he is born of God, he is a recipient of grace and salvation. Where does it say that? 1 John 5, 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And so these various belief passages, think about the Gospel of John and all the times that Jesus spoke of the believer. What does he say about him? The believer hath everlasting life. John 3.16, God so loved the world to distinguish between people everywhere and the Jew 
that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but everlasting life. That isn't a proposition, it's a declaration. Because in order to believe, you have to be born of God. 1 John 5, 1. John 1 says the same thing. Those that received him were born, not of flesh, not of blood, not of man, but of God. They believe because they're born of God. They receive him because they're born of God. They're born of God through grace. And so Scripture promises the believer over and over and over again eternal salvation as a declarative assurance to you that your heart would, would rest in hope that heaven is your home because of Christ. Because unless God had saved you and drawn you to himself, you wouldn't believe, you wouldn't receive, you wouldn't love him, you wouldn't hope for his second coming. You wouldn't hunger and thirst after his righteousness. Notice this, John three eighteen. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. He's already condemned. He's already condemned before he believed not. His condemned state is why he believes not. He's condemned in Adam. He's totally depraved. Without Christ in the world, he has no hope. Go through the Gospel of John and all these believeth texts, all these glorious promises to the believer. John 5, 24, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. If you believe, it is because you have everlasting life you have everlasting life because you have passed from death unto life. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus, and that's why you believe. John chapter 6, verse 40, This is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Over and over and over again, the promise of assurance this assurance is given, this declarative statement, God does affirm, this affirmation is given to us, that if you believe, heaven will be your home, because you wouldn't believe unless you were saved, unless God had resurrected your dead soul. Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. We believe according to the working of His mighty power. This is top three favorite verses. We believe according to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. We believe because God has raised our dead souls from death and sin to life in Christ. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Ephesians 2.10, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. You're a new creation. That's why you believe. And because you believe, Scripture promises you over and over again that you'll be in glory with Christ. Now let's end this message today with an exhortation. I ended 12 minutes early last week. Would you give me 12 minutes over? I'm just kidding. Remember that we labor and suffer reproach for Christ. We labor and suffer reproach in the gospel ministry to find these people of all men out of every nation, kindred, and tongue, with the gospel. We search for them. 
We preach indiscriminately to mankind. And that gospel message is the hook that catches the fish, as it were, the hungry child of God, fishers of men. Mark 16 says to preach the gospel to every creature. We do not know who does and does not belong to Jesus. And so we preach in attempt to catch, as it were, his children in this world. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse chapter 1 and verse 10 says that the gospel of Christ brings life and immortality to light. God has much people in this city. Who are they? I don't know until they receive the gospel. And the reception of the gospel brings their life and immortality that Jesus gave them to light. Does that make sense to you this morning? Jesus said when you go into a city, you go into a house, salute it. And if the Son of Peace be there, if the Son of Peace be there, your peace shall return unto you. You know that you've found a child of God. And so you disciple him. You love him, you receive him, and you care for him.